BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Breaking Beauty, the podcast all about the breakthrough people, products, and moments in beauty. We're your hosts, Jill Dunn and Carlene Higgins. Hey, Breaking Beauty fam. Welcome back to the show. It's Wednesday. So it's Jill and Carlene here. We're two beauty editors turned beauty podcasters. And today we're switching gears a little bit. We're going to be chatting about appearances on a whole deeper level. And I just want to take a moment to issue a bit of a trigger warning. Today's episode, we'll be talking about obsessive compulsive disorders, disordered eating, self-harm. So just wanted to let you know that up front. We're going to be talking about things like when hair thinning is from hair pulling, a body-focused repetitive behavior that you might be causing yourself, or your scars are from skin picking, a habit that maybe started out innocent enough and now really bears the signs of a deeper distress going on. Yeah, and I think that this is definitely in the ether right now. The New York Times has written more than a few articles this year on the mental health crisis, particularly amongst adolescents in North America. So joining us today to help educate and enlighten us on the topic of everyday addictions and anxiety is Dr. Judd Brewer, a.k.a. Dr. Judd who is a neuroscientist, an addiction psychiatrist, and the director of research and innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center, where he serves as an associate professor of behavioral and social sciences. Dr. Judd is the executive medical director of behavioral health at ShareCare, which is a digital health company, and he's a research affiliate at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Yeah, so he's really a thought leader in the field of habit change. He's developed and tested mindfulness programs that include treatments for smoking, emotional eating, and anxiety. He's a New York Times bestselling author. His most recent book, it just released in paperback, is called Unwinding Anxiety, New Science Shows How to Break the Cycles of Worry and Fear to Heal Your Mind. And jumping from that book, there is a companion app also called Unwinding Anxiety that you're going to hear about today. It's basically a step-by-step daily program that's scientifically proven to help reduce anxiety. I think their clinical results were by like 67% or something. So it's pretty incredible. 
definitely needed in today's day and age. So in our episode this week, you're going to learn about why our minds get caught in this loop when it comes to any type of addiction, whether it's excessively biting your nails or substance abuse. And Dr. Jed really talks to us about new ways to think about anxiety and the treatment of it and the role of social media in our collective mental health right now. So here he is. Welcome, Dr. Jed. Welcome to Breaking Beauty Podcast, Dr. Judd. First of all, you've probably never heard this before, but you you know you're like a doppelganger for somebody else really famous, right? <laughs> <laughs> so who, who you, look, would... you look exactly like Steve Jobs. You yeah. look exactly I've gotten that before today. Yeah, I, I didn't put on my black fake or a pseudo turtleneck. Just uh. yeah, yeah. Okay, well, everybody, Dr. Judd, he's not the late founder of Apple, but you wear a lot of hats. You're a neuroscientist, you're an addiction psychiatrist and an author. Tell us what an addiction psychiatrist is, because I, I heard about an addiction counselor, but not mm-hmm. so much an addiction psychiatrist. So what do you do? Tell us about that. Well, this, the simple way of thinking of it is as a psychiatrist, I see a lot of people with addictions. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's the long and short of it. So, you know, we can get special training. And I even did some postdoctoral training at, at Yale after my residency to really zoom in on addiction treatment and how to work with it. So, you know, I, I, a lot of psychiatrists steer clear from addictions, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because... Mm-hmm. It can be a very challenging field to work in, but in fact, I you know I I like challenges, but also there's something about helping people with addictions that's just really you know it's just like they're my people, you know it's like mm. it's there's just so much to do, and there's there's so many things that don't work that I'm you know, really interested both from a you know putting on my psychiatrist hat clinically helping people, but also putting on my neuroscientist hat, seeing how we can take what we're learning in the lab and apply it in my clinic. And now a word in partnership with Macy's. It's October, so you better believe I'm sipping on a pumpkin spice latte while watching Hocus Pocus 2 and lighting candles that smell like apple crisp. I mean, I'm leaning into fall. Why fight it? And I want to be as cozy as possible in my surroundings as I am from head to toe. So I need to tell you about the booties that I'm eyeing to keep my toes toasty. Those are the UGG mini platform booties. I became obsessed with them because I saw these photos from backstage at New York Fashion Week and tons of models and celebrities were wearing them with their loungewear. And I was like, ooh, that is such a cute look. And as luck would have it, Macy's is having the great shoe sale right now. It's happening from October 5th to October 12th. And there's mega savings. Buy one pair, get 30% off and buy two pairs, get 40% off. And yes, of course, they have my beloved UGG booths. They're selling fast, so I got to add them to cart. But they also have you covered with all of the season's trends. There's over-the-knee boot styles. There's chunky loafers. They have lug sole boots. So those look so great paired with midi dresses and tights. And then they have booties for every vibe. So where are my cowgirls at? Plus so much more. So the Macy's Great Shoe Sale is here just in time to debut your fall statement shoes. Buy one pair, get 30% off. Buy two pairs, get 40% off. Yep, you can save more the more you shop. 
shop. So bring a few new additions into your fall rotation. The Great Shoe Sale is only happening from October 5th to October 12th. So head over to Macy's.com slash shoes. That's Macy's.com slash shoes. Now back to today's chat. Do you want to start a company but have no idea where to begin? Or do you have dreams of becoming an influencer? Well, the Life with Mariana podcast is here to help. I'm Mariana Hewitt, a Los Angeles-based influencer and co-founder of the Clean Skincare line, Summer Fridays. Each Tuesday, I'm talking to my friends from business owners, wellness experts, and more to share all of their best advice for you to live your best life. Make sure to tune in and subscribe to my podcast and follow me on Instagram at Mariana underscore Hewitt to see what's coming up each week so you don't miss an episode. You know, I think for a long time, there was an understanding that addiction is a disease. Is that still the school of thought in a clinical sense or has that understanding or definition of addiction changed over time? Well, one definition that hasn't changed is the one I learned in residency and it's basically continued use despite adverse consequences. And I like that definition. Mm -hmm. One, it's simple enough for me to be able to remember. So I like that. (laughs) But also continued use despite adverse consequences isn't just about alcohol or heroin or cocaine or, or opioids. It's about anything, you know? We could be continuing continuing to shop for people that compulsively shop, you know, adverse consequences when they look at their credit card bill and have all this stuff that they don't need. You know, they're, they're scratching that itch of like, this is uncomfortable. I'm going to make that discomfort go away by shopping, for example, or, mm-hmm. you know, social media or checking our newsfeed. There are all these things that fall into this realm of addiction that, you know, really are continued use despite adverse consequences. The other Mm -hmm. thing that I like about that definition is, you know, often people talk about addiction as a disease. You know, (laughs) it just sounds so inhumane, (laughs) to be honest. Mm -hmm. And so, and there are all these, you know, like, oh, the psychiatric condition, there, you know, this and that, there's something, you know, the the general story is there's something wrong with you. And I don't like, I don't like that narrative. I like the narrative of, you know, there's one condition and this is the condition that I treat. It's called the human condition. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so if we can start to really explore and understand how our minds and our brains work, we can treat the human condition, no matter what label somebody might place on it, like addiction or, or this or that. So I like the idea of continued use despite adverse consequences and mm-hmm. treating the whole human. Definitely. So there's obviously there's substance abuse, there's disordered eating, gambling. Those tend to be the most common or the things that we think of when you think of about addiction in quotes. Are there other types of everyday addictions that you are seeing that are on the rise that people maybe aren't as aware of? Well, I would say some of the big ones, some of the trending ones (laughs) to, you know, pun that in, which are social media. So if you mm-hmm. look at social media mm-hmm. and news feeds, for example, you know, I remember working with a resident physician that was training with me who one day she brought in the example from her own life where she said she had these two young kids and she, she realized she woke up from a daydream, basically from a daze of checking her news feed when she looked around and her two kids are eating dinner at the table without her. And she's thinking, mm-hmm. how am I so caught up in my newsfeed 
that I'm not spending really you know quality time with my two young kids having dinner. So there's an example: news feeds, social media. Those are those are certainly ones that that people are really caught up in that I see a lot of, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of things related to where there are these tools on the internet that can get us hooked. So compulsive shopping, for example, and also pornography. That's a big one that that was enabled by the rise of the internet. I don't know how many years it took when the internet first you know was established for Amazon to break into the top 10 most viewed websites because for forever the top 10 were pornography websites you know like and that's mm-hmm. that's kind of tapping into our human biology and making you know making things readily available to the point where it's really hard for people to stop consuming that content yeah definitely so many so many questions but you know we are a, a beauty podcast so i think you know if we're going to get specific Let's start with something that our listeners have heard us talk about a lot in the past, plastic surgery and cosmetic Mm. enhancements. You know, is this an addiction of concern that you're seeing? Because certainly I think it's such a fascinating and gray area because we see celebrities, for example, on social media and and people are commenting. Half the people are like, oh, I love this celebrity. And half the people are going, what is going on with her face, for example? Like, and I think the thing is, celebrities have a lot of money and a lot of power and not a lot of people who want to say no to them. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to know your take on this new world and potential addiction. Yeah. Well, let's start with that piece around people don't want to say no or give honest feedback. Mm -hmm. And in in social media, there's this, this weird dichotomy like you're highlighting. But whenever somebody's in power, there are going to be fewer people you know, you, what are the sayings, you know, to speak to power because mm-hmm. it could it could harm that person. You know, if somebody is powerful, then they could use that power to harm somebody. And we see this, you know, in, in celebrities and politicians and whatnot, where if somebody does something that the, the person in power doesn't like, then there's retribution, you know? And so mm-hmm. the more powerful somebody gets, the light, less likely they are to get honest feedback. And that's not, just in the internet age, you know, what's that, the children's story, the emperor's new clothes? Yeah, (laughs) that story has been around forever. And so how many people are willing to give somebody honest feedback with all that they have to risk? So I just want to highlight that. And that's where, you know, if somebody's in power, the best thing that they could have for them is one, some humility. And often those don't go together as much as I'd like to see, you know, because if they're humble, they're going to ask people for feedback and they're going to know that getting accurate feedback is going to be the best way for them to move forward as an individual. And if they have power to affect the people around them, hopefully with altruistic intentions, but not everybody has those. So, you know, the best way to, to, you know, to, to live is to get feedback. You know, that's how our brains learn best is through feedback. So if we, let's apply this to plastic surgery, for example. So, you know, people can have a smaller realm of influence or sphere of feedback. You know, they, they, we had this a smaller sphere before social media. And with social media, now suddenly you can get feedback from anybody anywhere in the world at any time, in theory, right? If you've got a big enough platform or you get on a platform where you're trending or something like that. So here... 
there all of the aspects of social media that I'm sure you've discussed before come into play. So we've got FOMO. So, you know, fear of missing out. If somebody sees a celebrity and they think, oh, that person looks young or looks great or looks some way that I want to look, suddenly mm-hmm. now there's this social comparison that could happen. Whereas they it couldn't have happened if they, you know, if if they were isolated, if they didn't, if they didn't have that social media piece where they could see. So we see, and we especially see this in teens, unfortunately. It's so sad, where there's this constant social comparison. And on mm-hmm. social media, it's just, you know, it's really on steroids. We we never had this amount, this ability to get to see so many other people at you know, so quickly where we could give ourselves feedback and be talking to ourselves and saying, I don't look pretty enough. I don't look good enough. I don't look this or that. So there's that piece where we're, you know, it it creates this lack, this, I wish I had this that somebody else has. And then there's that other piece where, you know, whether it's trolling or something else, where it's like, oh, what's wrong with that person? And so... You know, we're either comparing ourselves saying, I want more of that or comparing ourselves judging others. Right. (laughs) You know, we're Mm -hmm. really good at that as humans. I'm curious, though, from your point of view, like what could a doctor even do? Like, can they just say, no, we, we can't treat you anymore if we sense this addiction? Or how do you know, like if there's a listener who's been dipping their toe into cosmetic enhancement and one thing leads to another and they're finding they're always wanting, like, what would your advice be for that situation? Wow. Well, there, I mean, there's so many things that different ways that that could be explored that they, you know, this is, and this is just my opinion. (laughs) If somebody is going to a plastic surgeon and, and trying to look outside of themselves for happiness, Mm -hmm. you're never going to find it. And this is where we look inside. You know, the only way out is through. You've probably heard that phrase before. It's one of my mm-hmm. favorites. The only way out is through. So as we try to avoid discomfort, our brains are set up to avoid discomfort. We can turn to that mechanism and say, oh, my brain is trying to get me to make something unpleasant go away. And in the past, I've made something unpleasant go away by distracting myself on social media or getting a cosmetic enhancement or whatever. But that hasn't actually given me lasting happiness. It might have even made things worse. So what can I do instead? Well, we we can start to learn to bring kindness and curiosity to ourselves and our own experience. And instead of going, oh, no, that's unpleasant, we can train ourselves to really lean in and go, oh, what does this feel like? And we can start to tap into curiosity. I think of it like a superpower because curiosity can help us be with unpleasant sensations. And it can also help us map these processes out so that instead of being constantly sucked into these habit loops, we can actually step out of them. And just the stepping out in itself feels pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you're taking a step toward, you know, a deeper level of happiness, right? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. For sure. All easier is, you know, definitely easier said than done. And I'm not going to lie. I love looking at facelift before and afters on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And I think about it. And it is like it. I'm sure these people would say their lives got better afterwards. Maybe it's not perfect, but 
Yeah, I don't but know. I think it's that thing. And I know somebody like this. And it's like, it's that thing where it was like, yes, that made them happy. But now there's the next mm-hmm. thing. And then there's the next yeah, thing for sure. And then there's the next thing. And that's when you're sitting there going, okay, I'm not against plastic surgery, but I'm, a, I'm just a little concerned at this point, you know, so di- mm-hmm. I think there's mm-hmm. a difference there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the yeah. before and after is just a snapshot Yeah, where it's like, and what about yeah. the after and the after and the after and, and the rest of our lives? We don't get the rest of the story. That's why it's called Instagram. You know, it's like a snapshot yeah. picture. And then, you know, everybody's tells these stories to themselves like, oh, that person has a perfect life. Well, mm-hmm. it was a nice yeah. picture. And, you know, that's how much, how much more is there really? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This episode is brought to you in part by Way. So we've been talking a lot about our scalp on the show lately, encouraging everyone to think of the skin on your scalp the way you think about the skin on your face. Now, most of us know better than to rough wash our face. You know, we're not going to be using a loofah to exfoliate our complexion anytime soon. So why is it that we think it's okay to be so rough with our scalps? I mean, I'll admit it. Sometimes when I'm in a hurry, I toss in my detangler and I'm probably brushing a little too forcefully. So I recently started giving it a little bit of TLC using Waze Scalp Serum, which helps balance, hydrate and soothe irritation creating an ideal environment for hair to live its best life. It's really easy to work into your existing hair routine. You can use it on wet or dry hair morning or night. And all you do is section your hair into big, large sections, and you just apply small drops from the applicator right into your part, rub it in and you're done. What I really like about the serum doesn't make my scalp oily, so it's not going to ruin my hairstyle. And I don't have to wash my hair any sooner than I normally would. I personally like to use it the week after I get my roots done at the salon because I do always find it's a bit red from all those chemicals and the way scalp serum helps to soothe that irritation with adaptogens like chaga mushroom and it is safe for color treated hair. It's also vegan, cruelty free and in recyclable packaging that looks like it belongs on an influencer's top shelf. With Way Scalp Serum, there's zero shame in the scalp care game. And if you want to enjoy the full scalp experience by addressing hair health from the inside out, you can try Way's thick and full supplements for a complete hair health regimen. You can try it for yourself with their promo code. The way to healthy hair starts with the scalp. Shop Way's all new scalp serum by going to T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com and use code beauty to get 15% off your entire purchase. That's 15% off your entire order at T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com code beauty. Now we've talked somewhat about social media, you know, and, and some of the impacts that we're, that it's having. It's also bringing to light some conditions that a lot of us may not have been as aware of. For example, the comedian Amy Schumer earlier this year went public with her battle with trichotillomania. Trichotillomania, I hope I'm saying that right, mm-hmm. which is hair pulling. And I know a lot of people do brow pulling as well. And, you know, again, this is the type of topic that we've been beauty editors for 20 years and we've really never written about this because people didn't talk about it. And for her, it was so extreme. She she admitted to having to wear a wig to school when she was 13. So it's not mm-hmm. just, you know, a small amount of hair twirling. So I wanted to ask you about this, these types of body focused repetitive behaviors we're starting to learn more about. 
Is this considered an addiction or, you know, what can you tell us about this condition? What I can say in trichotillomania is, is an example, you know, skin picking, you know, I think all of these fall into a category. And when you look at the neuroscience, this category is very much aligned with, you know, it's the same neural mechanisms that happen with addictions and habits. And so the basic process, you know, really is pretty simple. You need three elements to trigger a behavior and a result or a reward. So if you think of it, you know, this process was set up to help us remember where food is, you know, and our ancient ancestors that didn't have refrigerators, when they're out foraging for food, if they found food, there's the trigger, they ate the food, there's the behavior, and then their stomach would send this dopamine signal to their brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So there's, think of it as a reward from a neuroscience standpoint, basically it's there to help them remember things and learn things. So this learning process, you know, positive and negative reinforcement's been around forever. Eric Kendall got the Nobel Prize showing it's evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slugs. So you know, a lot of really solid science behind that. And we can see how trichotillomania, for example, maps onto this. So often that starts, and you can tell me what the common instances that you've seen are, but it starts with stress. So for example, teenage years, I don't know about you, but for me, my teenage years were the worst. They were the, they were the toughest, you know, and, you know, it, so, it, you know, junior high school, would you say Amy Schumer around 13? So, you know, same, yeah. same age. So mm-hmm. there's all this, you know, pressure, all this trying to fit in. Often people are going to a new school when they're, you know, kind of getting getting into junior high school. All these things happen so that stress becomes that trigger. And then the, you know, twirling our hair or pulling our hair or whatever, or skin picking, those become the distraction where, you know, in that moment, we're distracting ourselves from the stress. And then the result of that is that, you know, feels better because we're not paying attention to whatever our thoughts are or our feelings of stress are in that moment. So that feeds back and says, next time you're stressed, pull your hair. And that becomes compulsive because, you know, it's like it gets into our habit circuitry. And this is where obsessive compulsive disorder falls in as well, where you know, these repetitive behaviors become so compulsive that we feel like we can't do it. Well, continue just despite adverse consequences. If you just look at that simple definition of addiction, it falls into that definition as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what would you recommend as a course of treatment? Like, is this something that you can use one of the apps that you talked about or, you know, like some type of a self-help book? Or do you think when it starts to come to body-focused repetitive behaviors, can you, you need to seek professional help? What would your advice be? Well, as a as a professional that tries to help, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't mm-hmm. steer anybody away from seeing somebody that that a professional that can help. It can be really challenging, you know, because they're often it's hard to get availability. You know, people have to fight with insurance. There are all these things that, that are barriers to folks getting professional help, and including you know, just not having a good match with the therapist or the the person they're working with. So I would never discourage somebody from doing that. I think of as a as a first line treatment, or I shouldn't even say that. I should say as as a way to help ourselves. You know, it's like some people benefit from medications. Everybody benefits from learning how their minds work. So I start there. It's like how can we get mental training to the masses? And so we've mm-hmm. actually taken a pain point approach 
where we start with people's pain points. It's like, if you want to quit smoking, you can use our Craving to Quit app. You know, it's based on study I did at Yale where we got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. You know, if somebody is struggling with overeating or stress eating or emotional eating, they can use our Eat Right Now app. You know, we got a 40% reduction in craving-related eating. Anxiety, you know, anxiety is a habit. We got a 67% reduction in anxiety in people with generalized anxiety disorder. And so I bring those forward because we can certainly use those as doorways in, but all of those are set up to help people as quickly and thoroughly as possible learn how their minds work so they can work with their minds. And so that's what, that's what I would say generally. And even my Unwinding Anxiety book you know, is set up as, you know, oh, here's how to understand anxiety as a habit. But it's also throughout the book, it gives examples of how we can work with any habit. So mm-hmm. you know, that's what it's all about is really understanding these basic processes, understanding that it's not about willpower and trying to force ourselves to stop doing X, Y, or Z. But it's really about tapping into the power of our brains and leveraging that really powerful reward system that's you know that's where i start and we've seen pretty good results even in, even in the places that we started you know smoking overeating anxiety stress eating things like that i wanted to circle back to what you said there about anxiety as a habit so i don't want to give away the plot of your book or where you know the ending but as somebody who's you know experienced anxiety myself and panic attacks I'm curious what you mean by anxiety is habit. Mm. Yeah, this is the most important thing that I never learned in medical school. <laughs> Maybe I slept through that class or you know, my professors were too busy trying to teach us how to prescribe medications or whatever. But the um, you know, it took me struggling as a young psychiatrist with not being able to help my patients with anxiety. So you know, about one in five patients benefits from the best medications that we have for anxiety. You know, that's called the number needed to treat, right? One in five, 5.2 is the official number. And so I basically play the medication lottery where, you know, I don't know which of the next five patients I treat is going to, you know, show a significant reduction in symptoms and what to do with the other four. So I was struggling and I you know, I started looking back at the literature and back in the same decade, so 1980s, when Prozac, you know, the first SSRI came out, this guy, Thomas Borkovec, was writing about how anxiety could be driven through negative reinforcement. And when I read that, I had this light bulb moment because I was thinking, oh, that makes complete sense. I see that in my clinic all the time. You know, that trigger, the feeling of anxiety leads to the mental behavior of worrying. Typically, we think of behaviors as like eating or smoking or whatever. But this was the mental behavior of worrying. I was like, oh, yeah, of course, mental behaviors, they count too. And that leads people to feel like they're distracted from that negative emotion or feel like they're more in control, even if they're no more in control than they they would be if they weren't worrying. And that feeds back and drives anxiety habit loops. So when I learned that, I was thinking, oh, my gosh. This is so important, not only because it could help me understand where my patients were coming from and how they were struggling more, but also, oh, I'd been studying habits for a long time. So I could start bringing together what I knew about developing programs for habit change with what Borkovec and others had talked about with regard to anxiety as a habit. And that's where we developed our Unwinding Anxiety app and then started studying it. Like I mentioned, 
you know, actually our first study is with anxious physicians because physicians, I can say this from personal experience, we tend to be a pain in the ass to work with. So, you know, if, if we can work with folks that don't take care of themselves, don't prioritize their own health, you know, and kind of compartmentalize and all this, uh, then we can help everybody else. And so in our first study, we got a 57% reduction in these clinically validated anxiety scores in physicians. And I was thinking, wow, that's great. We even saw up to a 50% reduction in certain aspects of burnout where we hadn't even mentioned the word burnout. So we're thinking, okay, this looks pretty good. Let's do this, you know, full-on randomized controlled trial. And that's where we worked with people with generalized anxiety disorder and got a 67% reduction in anxiety. And just to put this in context, you know, with medications, that number needed to treat is 5.2. So one in five patients is going to benefit. The number needed to treat in that study was 1.6. Mm -hmm. So we we're pretty, pretty happy with those results. Yeah, that's incredible. Now, I'm sure it's probably not that easy to sum up, but it's like, is it, I think a lot of people listening are like, is it a breathing app? Is it the Calm <laughs> app? Like, what is it? It's not the you Calm know? app. No, <laughs> the, the Unwinding Anxiety app is really set up to do one fundamental thing, which is to help people understand how their minds work and then help them work with their minds. So as a, when I... When I started meditating, I started meditating my first day of medical school. And I was like, oh, this is kind of helpful. And so it does have mindfulness practices in it as a way to help people work with difficult experiences. But it starts with helping them understand why they're doing these things. So for 10 years, when I was trying to pay attention to my breath, you know, that standard meditation practice, I would... I would, I remember my first seven day silent meditation retreat by day three, I was crying uncontrollably on the shoulder of the retreat manager because I was thinking I can get into medical school, but I can't pay attention to my breath. What's wrong with me? You know? So it's not just about breathing. It's about understanding why anchoring ourselves in the present moment can be helpful. And then, so mm -hmm. basically the Unwinding Anxiety app walks people through a three-step process starting with helping them map out these habit loops around anxiety, whether it's worrying, whether it's procrastination, distraction, eating, anything. Because if you can't see it, you can't work with it. So once they can mm -hmm. map those out, then we have them ask this simple question, what am I getting from this? And this really taps into the basic neurosciences of our brains, which is our brains are going to stop doing things that are unrewarding. And then the mm -hmm. third step is my favorite. I call it finding the BBO, the bigger better offer. And because our brains are going to stop doing things that are unrewarding, they're going to look for something better. And so what better to give our brains than something that's intrinsically rewarding? So if somebody's worrying, have them compare it to what it's like to be curious. Oh, what does this anxiety feel like in my body as compared to, oh no, what, you know, how long is this going to last or what's going to happen? The dread. Yes. Yeah. I know that's, the dread. Yeah. Dread doesn't feel good. If we pay attention, we can see, oh, wow, dread. This doesn't feel so good. Curiosity feels a lot better. You know, oh, what's this story that I'm telling myself to fill in that void because my brain doesn't like uncertainty? Mm -hmm. Same thing with, with self-judgment. I see self-judgment gone through the roof. You're asking about what, what's trending, self-judgment trending big time. It's been trending for years. Because we're so good at seeing how everybody else's life is better than ours. And then we judge ourselves. and What's wrong with me? And is my life ever going to get better? So then we can compare that to kindness. Well, you tell me what feels better, self-judgment or kindness? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's true. A, it's a no-brainer. It is a no-brainer. So our brains, mm-hmm. we just have to help them see that the old habits aren't helping them anymore and that they can develop new habits, you know, and kindness and curiosity. You don't have to buy them on Amazon. We all have them intrinsically. They're free. We just have mm-hmm. to cultivate them. So that's that's where we spend the majority of our focus in our Unwinding Anxiety app and our, in our Eat Right Now app is helping people develop these natural capacities for curiosity and kindness. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So you're telling us it's all inside our own heads. That's the key. We just got to unlock it. So I'm downloading this app right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This episode is brought to you in part by Clinique. When my big sister first came home with Clinique's three-step system back in the day, When we were teenagers, I was jealous. Let me tell you, cleanser, clarifying lotion, moisturizer, that's it. No gimmicks, just minimalist skincare before that was even a thing with effective ingredients that got results. Fast forward a couple of decades and Clinique just keeps smashing it with Clinique's first foundation designed to be the last step in your skincare routine. Even better clinical serum foundation is formulated with three serum technologies that visibly reduce dark spots, brighten, and hydrate skin. What I love about it is that growing sunspot on my left cheek isn't just getting covered with makeup. It's also visibly working to reduce the look of my dark spot for more even tone after eight weeks. Just as the name suggests, Clinique is taking a clinical approach to foundation, blending three serum formulas that target those dark spots also your moisture barrier, and radiance right in the finish. Plus, physical sunscreens are protecting my skin from further UV damage thanks to its SPF 25. Now, let's talk about the finish. Clinique Even Better Clinical Serum Foundation is a buildable, medium-to-full coverage formula with a satin-like finish. It's also hydrating and oil-free. Plus, with 24-hour color true wear, it's built to withstand water, sweat, and humidity without any caking, creasing, or streaking. And it's safe for acne-prone skin. With 42 shades to choose from, you can find your match with Clinique Clinical Reality Shade Match Science Virtual Try-On today. Don't call it makeup. This is skincare in just your shade. Find your shade today at Clinique.com. And now back to the show. Okay, so I wanted to ask you, you know, the New York Times has written a lot about this, about the inner pandemic, you know, in terms of mental health crisis, particularly amongst young people and self-harm is on the rise. So some people might wonder whether it's almost like not a trend, that's the wrong word, but like a movement while others see it as a sign of collective distress. So what's your take? And even we had like someone in our Facebook chat room wonder this this exact thing. Like it's almost like they're seeing other people doing, doing behaviors like this. So Mm -hmm. they're like mimicking it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like is social media helping to find a supportive community or is it triggering, you know, is it triggering a community? I think is, is kind of the, the question she was getting at. Yeah. It's a really good question. And it's hard to know chicken and egg because if you create the problem and then you there's a solution that comes with the same problem. Is it that the you're creating that community for support or you're creating, you know, this. So as humans, we're constantly scanning our environment for information. You know, information to our brains mm-hmm. is like food to our stomachs. It helps us survive. 
And so if somebody is suffering and they're looking around for a way not to suffer and somebody else says, oh, you know, I cut myself as a way to, to you know, just feel. That's often how people describe it. You know, it's like to feel alive. You know, they're like, oh, maybe I'll try that. And then, you know, a big, so there's this process where people are exploring things because others have suggested it. And I think that happens a lot on social media. And they're, you know, people are trying to study, you know, these different, different things. And I think, you know, cutting is one of those examples. So my sense is, I'm not sure that social media is a, the best way to have true connection. If you're looking for support, <laughs> just mm-hmm. my opinion. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it probably plays more into the, oh, that person did that. Let me try that as compared to, oh, now I'm getting good support for something that I, I would have spontaneously started doing myself. You know, it's like if somebody lived in a, mm-hmm. in a bubble, you know, it's just not human nature to naturally be like, oh, let me see if I can cut myself to feel. That's, that's typically more of a learned behavior. Mm-hmm. So what, what I'm sort of hearing, because, you know, we're of a generation where we know the before kind of screens or social media, we know the after. Is it a case of the scientific community trying to catch up and do the studies now so they really don't know? Or how much does the scientific community know about the repercussions of, you know, being young and growing up on social media? I think obviously everyone has this question is, you know, if it's so harmful, what's going to happen? And so I'm curious what your take is on that. Yes. Well, it's hard for scientists to do those studies because this is a vast, uncontrolled, naturalistic experiment that we're doing as a human species. So it's impossible to really know exactly what the impacts are and what the causal connections are, you know. So that's, I should just state that up front, it's really hard to do the work. And I think, you know, our brains don't like uncertainty. So we're going to naturally be thinking what's going to happen in the future. You know, we don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Some of the more rigorous studies have suggested that, let's just put it, sum it up this way. Social media is not good for teenage people, you know, especially, especially teenage girls. You know, the, there's already social pressure. And then you add on it, you know, all the social media stuff and the, and the social comparison just goes to the roof as we were talking about. So really not helpful. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what the studies mm-hmm. are, I think, can relatively consistently showing. Mm-hmm. Well, as a parent of a teenage daughter, preteen daughter, I have to ask for advice on that front because I think it's so tricky when, you know, in and of myself, I have to admit that I'm probably technically addicted. Mm-hmm. You know, I, like I walk around the house with my phone all the time. You know, to I remember when my kids were even younger, like toddlers are like, oh, you forgot your phone because I was mm-hmm. going from upstairs to downstairs, mm-hmm. you know, when everybody ditched landlines. And it's like, when did that start happening that I can't mm-hmm. leave a room without my phone? And I'm not waiting for a call. I just might need to look at it every, you know, five seconds. So, It's really tough because it feels like what used to be when we talk about addictions or everyday addictions that, you know, there were some people have these addictions and some people don't. And now Mm -hmm. it feels like as a collective, 
this is all of us now, mm-hmm. right? Yes. The, this is our lifestyle. And so how do we as a parent say, okay, you're going to have one hour of screen time a day, which I like, honestly, kudos to the parents who are doing that because Good luck. I just don't, I just <laughs> don't know. I would feel like such a hypocrite because I'm mm-hmm. on a screen right now. I'm on screens all day. And anyway, I'm curious what you. Yeah. I think say. you're, you're hinting at the first place that I would suggest people start exploring, which is really knowing our own experience and modeling the behavior. So you're talking about, you know, I need to, I think use the the word and not to mince, you know, to split hairs here, but you said, oh, I need to, you know, need to check my phone. We can look at that as, is that a need or a want? And for most of us, we don't need to check our phones all the time, but we find ourselves scratching that itch of wanting to check our phones because it's a habit. And so if we're doing that as a habit, then we're going to model that behavior for our kids. And if we are if we're going on our phones, for example, to mediate our own distress, so if we're bored or we're stressed or whatever, and we go on our phone, we're going to model that. So we're going to model a lack of distress tolerance. And if we do that, then that's going to be, you know, our kids are going to learn that too. So that's the place I would start is we start with ourselves. And we learn how our own minds work because then we'll be able to relate to our kids more and understand how their minds work and what they're going through. And then instead of them saying, oh, mom, you don't understand me, you might actually understand them more. You know, And at the same time, you, you help them see how unhelpful those feeding those wants are, which then opens the space to meet the needs. Instead of feeding wants, we give them love and care and attention, all the things that they need, which you probably do anyway as a parent, but you can emphasize, not even, you don't need to emphasize it. You just do it. And I think mm-hmm. you're smiling because you, you, you understand what I'm saying because you probably know this from your own experience. And when you just do it, then they're not going to have those itchy, urgy wants as much because they're, they feel loved and cared for. So if there's one thing that someone who's listening can do right now, to relieve their anxiety in the in just seconds, Dr. Judd. Let's work with me here. They don't have time to, they don't even have a phone. They're not getting their your app. So what would it be? <laughs> that is stressful. Yeah. I would say the one thing they could do is tap into their their twin superpowers of curiosity and kindness and bring and flip that oh no of worrying to oh. What is this? Instead of why is this happening? What is happening? So we ground ourselves in the present moment and step out of those loops. How's that? Don't even need to buy my book. Okay. (laughs) Perfect. I love it. Only be as kind to ourselves as we are to other people or we want to be to other people, right? Mm -hmm. For sure. Thank you so much for your time with us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening. You can find details on every product mentioned in today's episode, along with our exclusive promo codes on our blog at breakingbeautypodcast.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. Every episode will be delivered directly to your inbox so you won't miss a single thing. And get social with us. Let us know what you think of the episode. You can follow us on Instagram at breakingbeautypodcast. And did you know we also have a private Facebook group? Just search Breaking Beauty Podcast chat room. You can even leave us a voicemail at any time with questions or feedback at 1-844-227-0302. And don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast fix. Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts, where you can show us some love by writing a review. See you next Wednesday. note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.